brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, on the surface it sometimes might seem like that uh, if you're going to be looking at cause and effect in life, you're going to say, well, what I'm going to do today in the present is going to impact the future, and that's typically the way it goes. Right? If, if I'm going to do something now, that's going to affect things later. But it can also be true that what's going to be happening later can affect what's happening now. We're, we're oftentimes motivated by the future to do things today. You're doing, if you're working for somebody, there's this anticipation that by the time the week's over or the pay period is over, which is in the future, uh, you're going to get paid. And so what's going to happen in the future is going to impact you today. Your desire to work is impacted by what you're anticipating is going to happen after you're done working. Uh, if we if we exercise, if we work out, you know, part of the reason we do it is because we know that in the future, that once we're finished with that, uh, there's going to be some fruit that's going to be ours to enjoy from our labor. And so that future fruit motivates the present effort. Our work for the week will be finished if we work a little bit harder today. That future might motivate our present. Now some events are bound to happen. Right? And so, so we plan our day accordingly. If a particular store is not going to be open on the 4th of July or isn't going to be open on Christmas Day or whatever it might be, then you might say, well, you know what? Then I better do my shopping on the 3rd of July. Or I better do it before Christmas rolls around. So the, the future affects our present. And that's the truth for those who hold fast to the blessings of the resurrection of believers. And that glorious physical change, that transformation that awaits the ultimate change, that awaits the people of God in Jesus Christ. That future event lends meaning to the present lives of Christians who, to be very honest, honest are, are the only people whose lives can be lived in a meaningful way on an ultimate plane. I mean, people will talk about how they, they want to make a difference in, in, in the world and they want to live meaningful lives. But meaningful life is lived by the Christian who has certain hope in the resurrection to come, devotes him or, him or herself abundantly to the Lord's service, and knows the value of serving the Lord. It's a meaningful life. And, and, and that's a blessing that's tremendous for any person who uh, finds themselves resting in, in this risen Savior and King. So we want to focus on those three points this morning as we consider the meaningful life of the Christian, which is certainly part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, starting with the certain hope in the resurrection to come. We focus first on the certain hope of the resurrection to come as we carry on in this therefore series. Our passage concludes with a therefore. Calling believers in Jesus Christ as part of the church of Jesus Christ to remain steadfast and immovable 
with the sense of certainty with it in light of the teachings on the resurrection that the Apostle Paul has been presenting. And he's been pre presenting that, of course, for the encouragement and the direction and the stability of the Christian church, his spiritual family. Right? Because he calls them his beloved brothers. Now, when he's saying what he does here, when he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and be immovable, uh, those, those words carry with them the idea that you are not going to move from the spot on which you're sitting. You know, sometimes when we're taking a photo, somebody tells us to stand in a certain place, and they'll say, come on, move in a little bit, right? Or, you know, put yourself like this. Okay, now hold it. Don't move. That's perfect. Hold your spot. You're in the, the sweet spot that way. Sometimes we tell our children, don't you move. From, the, from that spot until I get back. Now, that's kind of an uh, extreme hyperbole. We don't mean for them that they have to just, you know, they have to just stay like this the whole time. I'm not moving. And they come back. You come back, right, boys and girls? They, your parents come back, and you're still standing there like that. So I'm doing what you said, Mom. That, they, don't, they don't mean that so much. But they're saying, don't leave. Stay where you are. Because that way they won't get lost, or they won't get in trouble, or they won't get in danger. I don't want to be coming back to find that you have left, that you have changed your position. But what's Paul getting at when he says that we need to be holding our spots? He's saying to us, I don't want you to change. Of course, he's just finished a lengthy portion that described the benefits of the resurrection and the greatest of changes that are yet to come. We will all be changed. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And the apostle knows that to, to move away from such a belief in the resurrection is to take away, then, the hope and the meaning of life and to put ourselves then in a spiritual spot that's not a place. We're to let the greatest of changes that are to come keep us changeless in our devotion to Christ now. Even in the midst of great changes, you see, that occur in our lives. And that's why this... A passage like this is used oftentimes in funerals because people have experienced the traumatic change in their life, and yet the apostle says, Let nothing move you. Let nothing, nothing move you from that spot. Of serving Christ. I know there's changing that's happening. We see that in Abide With Me, right? Change and decay. It all around I see. But let nothing move you. 
don't change that devotion to Christ. And you're resting in Christ. Paul knows already in his day many opponents are there to the resurrection. And that's certainly true today, right? Some would say that the need for a bodily resurrection was unnecessary in Paul's day because, because the body was, was naturally a bad thing, and as so they said, and, and all that mattered was the soul, was the spirit, right? Others were saying that the resurrection had already happened. Paul pens that in one of his letters. And that most likely, again, on a spiritual plane, all that was to be considered in one's life was on this side of death. Because after death, there was nothing else. All that you had to look forward to that way was the changelessness of death. The Athenians mocked Paul in his discussions with them about the resurrection. They, they poked fun of him. Uh, poked fun at him. And we know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, had been denied by those who falsely accused the disciples of having stolen the body of Christ sometime soon after his death, even though there were these people who went and reported to them and said, oh, this, these are the things that happened here, and, and they said, well, that's okay, we'll pay you off, and we'll, make, we'll protect you, and we'll just, you just tell everybody the false gospel that somebody stole the body. Some would say that life is about eating and drinking and being married because tomorrow we die. That's the end of it. I live up for the moment, I do what I want, and then who cares? Because death makes what you do now irrelevant. So you might as well enjoy yourself, you might as well do it while you can. It doesn't matter what you do to other people, it doesn't matter how you act, because after death nothing changes. And, and really... That's how a lot of people do live, right? doesn't matter. But that leaves people in a meaningless existence. Nothing matters. Who cares what you do? Change all you want. Because you're going to die anyway, and that won't change. Without the hope of the resurrection, there's no reason to live an unchangingly immovable, trusting, devoted life for Christ. Paul says when it comes to holding your position on the truth of the resurrection where the greatest of changes occurs, don't move a spiritual muscle. Hold your spot. Don't let anyone or anything move you from that spot. There's nothing about it that is illogical or irrational to be following the risen Christ. Sin has caused death to occur. And sin happens because people break the law of God. The righteous and sovereign Lord Jesus Christ who accomplished all righteousness in his life and for his people wraps us in his righteousness so that our sin can no longer be the sting of death for us. Because Christ's righteousness takes the place of our sin. 
It's deposited into our spiritual account, as it were, so that while we may die before Christ returns, we still have a change to experience. We who are believers, along with all believers, will be changed physically at the last trumpet, which is something that nobody can miss because it's going to be something all will hear when Christ returns to gather his people to himself. No silent rapture that way. This last trumpet where Christ returns to gather his people to his own. He will, we will be changed from mortality to immortality. We'll be clothed with incorruptibility and no longer corruptibility. And flesh and blood, contrary to his detractors, says Paul, is in its corruptible state, doesn't inherit the kingdom of God. If that's what you're looking for in this life, forget it. If you're looking for utopia in this world, forget it. The kingdom as it exists after the resurrection, that is what we inherit. The moment of that change speaks of a, of a moment so quick, it's a twinkling of an eye, that one could not even conceivably split that moment. So quickly. And then, of course, we hear then that thanks is to be part of that immovability. If you're thinking about, well, what am I doing on that spiritual spot? Well, what I'm doing on that spiritual spot as I'm waiting, as I carry out this, this calling that I've been given, this, this changelessness that I'm supposed to be carrying out is meant to be gratitude as I'm waiting for the greatest of changes. The immovability is about believing in the resurrection to come and its blessings, but, but also then an attitude of gratitude. That that's how people know you. And you're sitting on that spiritual spot because God has turned us as believers from losers to winners. If I'm losing, I don't feel very happy about that. I don't feel very grateful about that. Well, thank, thankfully I lost today. No, I, I'm a winner. He gives us the victory. Because otherwise I'd be a loser, right? Sin would condemn me. Sin would be my defeat to evil, and it would lead to the ultimate death, uh, ultimate defeat of death. He's the greatest of enemies, Paul says earlier in the chapter. But that's no longer the case in life or in death for the believer, thanks to God in Jesus Christ. And Paul even speaks here, doesn't he, of death as in a transformed way, because he says, we will not all sleep. Now, now he's not... He's not saying that this is going to be an unconscious existence, and he's not trying to be insensitive to death. He's not, and he's not unjustifiably trying to gloss over death. He's just simply mentioning that this is what God in his Christ can do to death. It can transform it. Because now, for those who are laboring in the Lord, death brings rest 
to that labor. Christ recreated us to perform good works that we might do them in light of His grace, but there's going to come a time where you don't have to run the race of faith anymore. There is a finish line. You don't have to fight the good fight of faith beyond 15 rounds. You're going to get to a point where you can rest from your labors in Christ. And only Christ, only God can 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 make death, which would otherwise be such the enemy, to be such an ally. The paradox and the irony are that these great changes that God brings to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ unto a meaningful life are meant to keep us unchanged in our spiritual position. Let's not be moved away from resurrection hope. Because to live without resurrection hope isn't to live. No matter what we may do in this world, if we live without the hope of the resurrection, moved away from that essential spiritual spot of faith, thanks, and hope, our lives take on an emptiness and a vanity that only the living and reigning Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His gospel can fill. And so Paul is saying, don't move from that spiritual spot if you want a meaningful life. But he also says that the life of the Christian is meaningful because it's an abundant life. It's an abundant life when it's lived with resurrection glory, firmly and immovably fixed in faith and heart. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be steadfast, immovable, but always be abounding in the work of the Lord. See, this is also why there's a therefore. Since you have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ, his life doesn't end in death, but awaits a glorious transformation, glorious change from mortality and immortality. The hope that this gives us leads back to now, to a life that's worth living not just living, not just existing, but to the full. When the Lord is kept in mind, always give yourself fully, abundantly to the work of the Lord. Always abound. Quantity, quality. The word for abound here, or full, is used to speak about excess. Right? To full blue. Right, if you if you were filling a grain bin, right, or if you were filling a grain cart, and it got to the point that it was spilling over, you would be saying, "Well, we filled this to an abundance, to an excess." Well, that's how we're supposed to live life when it when it can be seen in the in the life of Christian hope and meaning is a life that can be lived abundantly. Thanksgiving as its catalyst. The idea is that all the time and to the end, the Christian life lived in the service of the Lord is suitably lived out by giving our best 
heart, soul, mind, strength. Now, now some people might might see that as, as that which involves the work that's done in the church of Jesus Christ. You know, for the church members of of Jesus Christ. Only a chapter before it was mentioned that people should use their spiritual gifts to the full for the benefit of the members of the church in 1 Corinthians 14.12. But would there be any area of our lives that shouldn't be devoted to the Lord's service in abundant fashion? Should that not be so when it comes to, to the studies that we're carrying out as students? You know, you, you students sometimes you, you cover some ground in your in your high school or your grade school and you say, you know what, I, I don't I don't see why I have to learn this. I, I don't get this. Or I, I you know when I get done with school I'm just gonna be working anyway. Why am I why am I learning? Well you're there. And you're studying something that God has created and you are there as a student and your attitude needs to be not first of all, this is dull, but your attitude has to be first, you know what, I'm doing this, I'm in this spot, God put me in this spot, and I got to do my best for the Lord. It may not be my favorite thing, but I got to give it my best. Always abound, right, in the work of the Lord. Does, does the work that the Lord require us only occur when somebody's preaching or somebody's evangelizing somebody? Don't, don't we have a service to carry out to the Lord to raise our children or and to do it well? Not just have somebody else do it well for us. But for us to do it well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much convinced that a lot of times that people will have children but, won't, but don't raise children. Somebody else does it for them. There's no time for those children. You know, do we, we have a, a, a we have a responsibility to carry out to the Lord to raise our children well or to treat our spouses well. Now, our labors don't belong to another Lord. He's Lord of all. It's the Christian who has the meaningful life when we know the hope of the resurrection. And so then we have great reason then, given what's coming, to give our best to the Master now. And to know that it means something to do that because death isn't the end for us. So we, we seek to be the best boss that we can be or the best producer that we can be or the best employee that we can be or the best player that we can be on the court or the best student, or teacher, or pastor, or elder, or wife, or husband, or son, or daughter, or grandparent, that we can be. Because we've got a meaningful life to live always in thanks to God. Gratitude to God, for, for the resurrection drives us. 
He gives us the victory through over death and sin. We can look forward to a bright future and live like that fully today. Finally, we see that the Christian has, has a meaningful life because he knows the value of serving the Lord. That in the Lord, knowing, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And now the word in vain here speaks about a product that is substandard. And it's not able to be sold and therefore carries no value. You can go to Walmart in Sioux Center and you can go down... I've been to Walmart a few times, I guess, but you can go all the way down to the east, the, the, what would be the western part of the store, and there'll be a rack there of stuff that they got to get rid of. And they're selling it for cheap. Because it's starting to get bad. It's not at the same standard as the rest of the, the materials, right? And pretty soon, you know, what's going to happen is that stuff will get thrown out. Because you won't be able to sell it. It's substandard. It's unsellable. It doesn't carry any value. You can't get anything for it. That's what the word is here. Your labor of the Lord is worthless. No, it's not. Earlier in the chapter, we hear about what vanity is and what it would be if there was no resurrection. We'd still be in our sin and we might as well live an empty life, partying, and satisfying our pleasures, however we wish, because in the end, death awaits and that's that. And that's why Paul sees it as so important that we don't move from the spot of confessing and thanking God for resurrection victory in Jesus Christ. Now, while unbelief in the resurrection leaves, leaves us in vanity and emptiness, laboring for the Lord is never in vain. And sometimes we may be tempted and we may think that our living for the Lord doesn't have its pay and it doesn't have its rewards. I'm tempted to think that way sometimes. And in my sin, I do. Right? And I'm sure you have times like that too. It's like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why, why do I bother? Isn't it, for, isn't it for nothing? Sometimes. I get that way sometimes. You say certain things, you counsel certain things. And this is over the years, right? Because all of a sudden I see I've been doing this a long time. And as I'm doing that for a long time, there's those times that you look at life and you look at what you're doing and it can bug you, <laughs> you know, when you say things or you preach things or you counsel people a certain way, or, or you, you, you try to make the point about how, you know, this is, this, is what law, this is what we ought, this is how we ought to see things from the Scripture. This is how we ought to live. This is what we should be excited about. These are the things that should be priority. 
And then you, you see people who just don't get it. And they don't care. They just don't. Though they hear you, and if you were to tell them, yeah, that, that's true, but it, it doesn't make any difference for them. They just keep doing what they do. They just keep doing it. Or don't do it. And then I, and then I want to say, why am I doing this? It's just always the same. See, that's the temptation. It's for nothing. It doesn't make any difference whether I say it or not. And that gets old. And I'm sure you have that sometimes. We just don't think it's worth it. Is it really... It doesn't, it doesn't seem to make any difference. People in our family don't respond to the gospel that we hold so dear, and that hurts. And as we seek to be faithful to the Lord in our endeavor, there's people that don't appreciate that. In fact, they may hate you for it. And we seek to be faithful in our service to the Lord, and, and, and we see various kinds of setbacks in our lives or the lives of those that we hold dear, and we give of our time and our money and our abilities, and we may wonder... Why? It's tempting to think that's all for nothing. It is. But it is for something. Never mind whether or not people care. Never mind whether or not they respond or not. For whom are you doing it? Are you laboring so that you'll be a star? Are you going to labor it because you want everybody following you? Is it for you? Or are you being faithful to the Lord? Is that why you do it? Apostle reminds us that when we're giving our efforts to the service of our Savior, that effort is never empty you're doing it for the Lord, you don't have to regret that you did it. You don't have to think it's worthless. It's the opposite. It's meaningful. If for no other reason that it is done out of faith, it's done according to God's law and for God's glory in Jesus Christ. Now, if any of that's miss missing, well, then that's pretty empty. But if it's not, then you should be encouraged by that. Because that's what makes it valuable. It's what makes it meaningful. It may be that, that, that you do, that the work that you do might be something that nobody else will ever know except your Savior. It, it may never make, well, newspapers aren't so much anymore, but it may not make the internet or the annals of history. It may not make the news on television. Breaking news, so-and-so came and, and harvested his field. News at 11. And you might think your work's rather, maybe, mundane. You didn't go to the moon. 
You don't hobnob with the rich and famous. You don't know anybody who's famous. But even if you're, you're peeling a potato or you're cleaning that dish for the 365th time of the year, that work that you did for the Lord was never empty. It can be meaningful if it's done for the person or for the Lord that every work is supposed to be done for, for His glory. I mean, there have been, been people who have done amazing things in the world. And you might say to yourself, I've never done anything amazing in my life. It doesn't matter. You know, we've, we've benefited by God's providence from many amazing things that people have done. But many works that are done in the, in the world are not done for the Lord. And if you're doing what you're doing for the Lord, that's what matters. Because what really makes your work meaningful, may I even say amazing in one way, is when the work is being done for the Lord and you know it. You can't control how other people are going to respond to your service to the Lord. But you will never have to regret that what you have done for the Lord is... You never have to think that that's for nothing. Not when in thanks you remember the victory that you have in the risen Savior. Not when you have not move from the spot of, of faith and thanks to the resurrection. And when you come to realize that what gives value to what you do is when you're doing what you're doing in the service of the Savior. That's what matters. And you know, it's only Christians, believers and followers of their Savior, who know that kind of meaning in their life. So be encouraged, <laughs> believers, in the resurrected Christ, you have much to live for. Because you have resurrected victory in Jesus Christ. And what will happen that way needs to impact you today. So that you live in the hope of the resurrection in your heart, it causes you to abound in the work of the Lord, and you know that that work that you do is not worthless. Now to those who don't know that hope, who don't live like that in that spirit, there's still time to turn from that empty way of life, of sin and unbelief, to the meaningful life that Christ has given. And that He gives. And that Christians have. And their faith and their hope is found in the reigning and risen Lord and Savior. Because Christians are the ones who can say their lives, they're looking ahead and working today. Thanks be to God, he gives me the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ.